0: These are the chronicles of the journey we take together.
1: The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind. wind door.
0: chapter one gives us the when, the where, the Windors, and the Wendigos, as you cleverly wrote down in your notes here.
1: It's a Dr. Seuss title for this.
0: <laughs> oh dear, yeah. Imagine how much easier everything would be if all we had to do was convince the Wendigo to try green eggs and ham. Chapter two, The Sharpshooters. Mm. Once more, we return to the journal format of storytelling. Though, at this point, the journal entry has no timestamp. Even though Frank narrates, we meet both Frank and Annie for the first time in Steamheart through this revelation of his background. We learn about the personal tragedy that he suffered that had only been hinted at in Arlington through him thinking about his, not ex-wife, but his deceased wife and his children and what he faced alone after burying them in that dark house. In another circumstance, this would be a time to jokingly let out a MY DEAD FAMILY cry, except that Frank Butler is not the kind of person to have that clichéd a response. Indeed, when he kills the Wendigo that tried to sneak up on him in the house, it is mostly instinct and self-defense, not an act of vengeance. The act of killing the Wendigo even ended up protecting him from himself. In a twisted way, a destructive act saves his life, a life that clearly goes on to be good and worthy. It reminds me of a story that Craig Ferguson once told about how back in his twenties he awoke in a puddle of urine in a room above a pub in London after getting shit-faced drunk yet again. Filled with shame and regret over his addiction, He decided he was going to jump off the Tower Bridge. But in trying to leave, the pub owner asked where he was going and reminded him that it was Christmas morning, suggesting a bit of Christmas sherry for the road. One thing led to another, and in his words, he forgot to go commit suicide. His destructive addiction ended up saving his life, and after he recovered and faced that addiction, he went on to do great things including hosting the American Late Late Show for many years. Obviously, having a good instinct for shooting and being an alcoholic are not the same thing, but it's a reminder that context is always important, and that even if Frank might wish he was not quite so good at this destructive act, we are at the very least glad that it saved him here, just as we are glad that he healed from the wound of losing his family to this tragedy. We learn the details about how he picked himself back up and went on the road, how he came to join the RSA, and in the process, meet Annie herself, finding a growing fascination with this outspoken and formidable woman. Frank's story is also further introduction to the world, as alluded to earlier. Mm. But where Annie's omniscient narrator and Frank's pathos both humanize the story to an extent, they do so in different ways. Annie's narration has appeals to empathy, but from an outside perspective. Through Frank, we get to hear what someone actually went through, rather than the larger, wide-angle lens of what everyone generally went through.
1: Mm-hmm. Frank Segman sort of works as a lost chapter of the cartographer's handbook, in that it's an account of what someone went through that is emblematic of the wider universal experiences of the time. As such, it works as this next level of specificity for prospective new readers that zeroes in on what it was actually like to live through this. This is just me basically rephrasing exactly what you just said. But... It also doubles as an effective way to relay the details about the RSA and how an organized reformation was starting to mount and why people responded to it. Managing this level of considered setting establishment and world building while giving us background on pre-existing characters in your series that fleshes them out and provides new insight into how they came to be how frank came to be the man he appears to be today is well it's impressive it's what it is there's not much more to my point than that alex has a lot of character backgrounds to deliver in this book so many in fact that he took the stuff with james and abigail and made a whole gosh dang special edition out of them and that amount of background does make steamheart Front loaded in some ways and means we take a while before we start to take off. But I do think that for this, Alex's placement of Butler's segment here, it is a brilliant move from a structuring perspective.
0: We will talk a little bit more about how Steamheart does have to cover a bunch of ground that had already been established in previous books, again, Mm. because he was trying to make it accessible to new. If this was going to be their starting point, he was trying to make sure that nobody was left out, or alternately, because, you know, he'd put these books out over the course of several years to sort of remind people of the salient details.
1: That Previously quickly... on New Century.
0: Exactly. To remind people of the specific elements that are going to be important for the story moving forward. That means that this idea of what we refer to as the introductory chapters, that's going to continue on for a bit longer. It will be an experience to us revisiting it to see if all of it works as well as it does going forward. I, I think that these first two chapters do work exceptionally well. It engages us. Mm. It engages us with the understandable heartbreak of Frank's previous life, and then with the chemistry between frank and annie even if you and i didn't already love them from the way they were portrayed in previous books it's very easy to see how a new reader would be charmed by
1: their meat cute i mean few lines are as sexually potent and laden with romantic tension as annie's delivery of pillow me like I I had to fan myself each time.
0: I honestly hadn't thought of that when you wrote that down. I I find myself charmed by Annie specifically because of Loretta's delivery and everything like that. Like, there is very often something playful in the way Mm. that she speaks. But I hadn't considered that level of playfulness until you pointed it out. And I had to sort of just sit and think about that for a bit.
1: (laughs) I mean... I will have to double-check this, but I almost think that the music that's playing in the background is the same music as a particular moment in Princess Thieves in the Mm. trunk.
0: When I went to listen to both this chapter in Steamheart and the mentioned chapter in The Princess Thieves, the piece in question does sound pretty similar, if not exact. Looking up the credits for this episode, the piece is Dirt Roads by Kevin McLeod. There is definitely a playful aspect to the music that does go hand
1: in hand with the humor of both scenes.
0: Oh, so, like, okay, yeah.
1: Like, I I won't go into more details because we technically haven't covered that book yet, so yeah. no spoilers. But um, I will confirm that, but if it is, that is Theme of Steam. <laughs> and not just Steamheart. <laughs> so you brought up the tragic component of this segment with the heartbreak we see Frank go through. I would also like to point out something that I noticed on re-listening here that becomes something of a theme with Frank and the role he has found himself in. The two skills that Frank had to offer, or he says he had to offer different survival groups, was blowing and sharpshooting one constructive, and one destructive. But the constructive skill apparently saw little demand, and it was his destructive talent at sharpshooting that saw more action. Frank even uses the example that, just as he could make a glass bottle on demand, if someone wanted a glass bottle breaking, he could do that too. His domestic talent for times of peace, whether temporary or longer-lasting, is fragile and easily broken. And I think that aptly symbolizes the concerning shift that Frank, and much of America by extension, has had to make towards a state of constant readiness for war.
0: I mean, it's a truism. It's easier mm. to destroy than it is to create. As you say, the juxtaposition of glass blowing and sharpshooting, it takes time. And as Frank mm. points out, the necessary materials and tools to be able to create glassware through that technique, whereas you can break a glass bottle or something else, end a life, so damn quickly with a good gunman. This metaphor brings many things to mind in the real world, such as the problems with gun proliferation, the tendency for police to default to violence instead of de-escalation, and the fact that four years of Trump undid a bunch of things, it took many more years to bring about in the first place. But these are all things we know well, and the only reason I bring them up is to emphasize the metaphor in this story, rather than once more get distracted down a depressing side tangent.
1: Okay, so I was actually curious about this, so I looked it up, and I was pretty sure that this would be the case, because this is just the sort of writer that Alex is, but glassblowing was indeed something that the real frank butler was able yeah. to do he initially worked a series of odd jobs including one as a glassblower so yeah uh kudos alex for teaching me yet another thing about this side of history that i didn't really know much mm-hmm. about before going away from like the sort of tragic implications there we do as you mentioned get that alleviation of tension here with annie and butler's meek you to me it's the fact that butler derails his own training session that gets me mm-hmm, especially when he's asked like if the rest of the trainees are going to get a go anytime soon and he says yeah yeah yeah, in a minute just hold on i need to get this done just one more try it's it's like he's stubbornly playing a video game and refusing to pass the controller until he wins this match that's going on longer than can be reasonably expected and yet what warms my heart is that butler maintains his gentlemanly good sportsmanship. He acknowledges when he's beaten. It's done without him having to resort to him throwing the match, which I'm glad he didn't. That last line as well about Matilda being a reminder that Annie is one shot better than him is a perfect encapsulation of that philosophy you often see Alex express with his male characters who express that healthy masculine trait of being an active support to the women in their life. They don't need to be the centre of attention or be the best in the room. They are there to make sure that the strengths and skills of the women they support have every opportunity to be where they need to be to flourish or help people or accomplish what these amazing women want to accomplish for their own paths and journeys. That's a great partner to aspire to be and it's 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 certainly the kind of man that i aspire to be i'm curious
0: when you mention the potential innuendo with annie's line of pillow me or when you talk about the competition between the two of them and the fact that it's free of toxicity Mm. i'm curious if you thought that this initial interaction with them might have been a clumsy attempt at flirting like one gets the feeling initially that he's trying to maintain his status of being an instructor and annie gets in the way of that but you're (laughs) right that the competing doesn't feel antagonistic Mm -hmm. but i ask the question because even after this it apparently took two years for the two to actually solidify a relationship
1: well I I would have to double check that. Was it two years for a relationship start, or two years before they decided that they would get married?
0: The text, as it turns out, is ambiguous as to what kind of relationship they had over the next two years. Toby is right, in that it was merely that it took them two years to be formally married. They could absolutely have had a romantic relationship for a lot longer. But the text uses the words dancing around each other, and the importance of formalizing relationships was a lot stronger back during that time. That made me think that it could have been a more drawn-out, unrequited sexual tension deal, rather than an outright romance. Regardless, my question was simply, were they flirting with each other? Which really only has to do with interpreting what was happening in that scene, and not what happened after.
1: I think that, whatever the case, there is a sort of immediate connection here that's made the situation literally frames it as Frank only has eyes for Annie in this mm. moment like mm. he has like mm. more or less forgotten about like <laughs> what he's actually there to be doing mm. and you're right at first he frames it as you know what we're going to do this and it's going to be like a little education for everyone mm. here and then it's sort of, like a DM, like it's essentially like a DM sets up a thing. One of the players does something and the DM is like, okay, like I don't necessarily hate this, but I'm going to try and like sort of, take this derailment attempt and kind of like uh try to show why it doesn't work and then that player like sort of bounces back and then the dm essentially starts just basically talking to that and then the rest of the players are like oh should should we be here for this and it's like <laughs> oh, we'll start the game soon like it's fine mm-hmm. it's a good scene it's a good yeah. scene that like feels like they work well as a pair but there's enough of them individually that you get a sense of both characters and I love it.
0: Mm. I'm not sure that there's much more that needs to be said than that. It the scene Works for itself as well as it does, and that's you're. We're going to be hearing a lot more about that as we continue this discussion of these introductory mm. chapters.
1: But one last thing I'll say, mm. one last thing, which is that like it's a good way of establishing character past through an activity mm-hmm. rather than a sort of expedition dump of like sort of mm. general states of affairs. It's like here is these two. This is what they are to each other and it was solidified through a little mini-tournament between the two.
0: Mm, and, mm, mm.
1: like, it's fun. It's it's what you yourself said. It's engaging.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It may feel unusual that we only talk about this chapter for 15 minutes, where we go on for a lot longer on other subjects. But on some level, this chapter is uncomplicated. It does reveal things we didn't know, but its primary purpose is to set up two characters that Toby and I already know fairly well and have talked about a lot, as well as some more world-building. And a chapter being straightforward doesn't make it a bad chapter, just that there isn't as much to say about it besides, we really liked it. Chapter 3, on the other hand, finally starts telling us more about characters we don't know as well. As we proceeded to Chapter 3, we continue to get to some of those elements right there as we introduce another member of the team that we're going to be seeing a lot of going forward the chapter itself is called Last Survivor which suggests that it's going to as it does, tell us about Elizabeth Flynn's fate but the chapter is more about giving us a far clearer picture of Jeremy Pines
1: precious cinnamon bun
0: (laughs) yes exactly so Introduced to us in Arlington, he was a fun character to listen to in that story, and his words gave tantalizing glimpses into him as a character. But now reading about him and his experiences gives us more answers and more questions. Uh, First of all, right out the gate, I really like how the flashback of his have his past not only gives us context for him as a character but that it's specifically a time that he remembers as a touchstone for future encounters Mm. this chapter encapsulates past encounter and present encounter in one concise mini narrative but has a similar feel to how events in secret rooms mimic this behavior both in that book and also bring important stuff into this story as well
1: I really love what this does because it bears at emphasizing that like these glimpses into our protagonists' lives all carry significance, not only to how we read their present actions and struggles, but to the characters themselves as they navigate the road ahead of them. They're basically kind of like, as you say, as we were talking about earlier, this is all linear, we carry forward, but what we're seeing here is a way of kind of communicating the fact that our pasts affect our present actions which Mm -hmm. like i'll never forget like i was sort of going into that one deep space nine episode and how much that kind of does challenge our preconceived notions that we are linear people it is nevertheless important that we understand our pasts as we navigate our present Mm -hmm. and it's really important for this book, but it's also really important that we do that without going too far into the lore of, like, that we've already established, or just, like, here's, like, all of the notes that, like, we basically just put Secret Rooms and, like, all these other books back into this one. I think that why it works here is because we didn't get to see that much about Jeremy before. Like, he was this character who is like, appeared beforehand, and we liked him, but he kind of had a little like asterisk next to him saying, like, will be important later. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I find it deliciously synchronistic that you brought up Deep Space Nine, because when you were discussing your response to this chapter, what comes to mind is uh, a line from Shakespeare's Tempest, what's past mm. is prologue, and there is, oh. Yeah, exactly. There is very specifically an episode of Deep Space Nine called Past Prologue, which focuses mm. on one of the ensemble of characters
1: for that show. And that, that really does summarize this. So you hear that, Alex? We don't just talk about, like, geek present pop culture. We're comparing your work to Shakespeare, so, <laughs> you know.
0: Bear in mind, I don't expect Deep Space Nine or any other show to be the new penny in the jar this season. There's already a lot of influences and resonances that this story brings to mind. Firefly is an obvious one, but I can definitely see Lord of the Rings coming up again, as well as Journey into the West. And I can assure you, based on my notes for future chapters, we're not done making references to a particular show I would not shut up about
1: last season. I, I've often joked about how at one point like, he has to accept that he's a good writer. I think that he knows that he's achieving certain effects well enough. But yes, we do make these comparisons without reservation.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. One of the questions I put to you, Mm -hmm. it's an intriguing question because thinking about it, especially as we're going to be talking about Harry in a little bit, we know that she is very specifically significantly neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. But something I was curious about as far as Jeremy is concerned is, does he just have a geeky personality Mm -hmm. or is he also possibly on the spectrum? Because when I was looking at how he relates to his friend in the past story and how he interacts with Elizabeth in the future story, we see that he is capable of empathy, but he sometimes needs to be reminded of it a little bit. He says an example at one point that he is afraid, but it feels to me that to him, fear is more ephemeral, one born of excitement rather than an understanding of danger. He feels like the kind of person that would go from studying the jungle of Rama to trying to ask questions of the manticore Brioth with no loss of enthusiasm.
1: (laughs) It definitely feels like that with what we know of Jeremy so far, that that's a sort of fun exaggeration that is not too difficult to envision. I do question that if he would be entirely oblivious of it, but I think that Jeremy is not oblivious to danger and real consequences of pushing too far. I just think that he has perhaps not had an excess of close encounters with the dangers of the things he is fascinated with. Like, I can't imagine that he has had no dealings with Wendigos and the damage they can do, as it is more or less a given in this setting that every living person now has gone through some kind of trauma and dangerous ordeal since the outbreak began. However, I think he has nevertheless been placed in positions and roles that have kept the subjects of his interest at a distance even when he is considering putting himself out there in order to brave the unknown and potentially find the answers he is looking for, he does nevertheless initiate the retreat for the sake of others. He is the one who says it's time to go back when he can tell that others are or would have to suffer in order for him to satiate his curiosity. Or at the very least, if it's difficult for him to sort of anticipate the point at which they would start to grow uncomfortable once he sees evidence of their discomfort he has the capacity to not let that draw out too much further yeah and i think yeah. and I, so i think that with jeremy if he is on the spectrum or not i to be honest I. Like, our understandings and like have expanded far enough that I think there's lots of different ways that it can manifest. So it's difficult to, I don't necessarily want to make a sweeping statement and say, oh, everybody has elements of that. Like, that's not really the truth of the matter. But it is something that has grown increasingly difficult to make a blanket statement that this person doesn't have any things because they don't exhibit the most obvious signs of it. Because there are many ways it manifests.
0: I mean but... that that is one of the significant. at like the word we specifically use is spectrum spectrum. There are a yeah. wide ranges of experience. and mm. most people perhaps are centered in one specific area of that spectrum. Mm. Like even if you're just looking at, say, literally the electromagnetic spectrum, you can mm. imagine that neurotypical people are like that tiny area. Of visible light, and mm. that the people that express the most difficult for other people to relate to them or to engage with the quote unquote neurotypical world are on those opposite ends with radio waves and gamma waves and everything.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: But because yeah. of that, there could be someone that's like, you know, on mm. the outer edge of visible light in like infrared or ultraviolet where they mm. mostly appear to be quote unquote normal to everybody else yeah. but do have aspects to them to make them you know potentially a little bit off-putting to other it, people as well.
1: I mean there's a reason why a lot of people tend to actually like not realize an aspect about themselves until actually a bit further on into life. Some people like will sort of get diagnosed not from an early age but much later. I mean I was diagnosed with dyspraxia very young and it's one of those things where i'm continuously sort of evaluating myself i had this sort of mistaken assumption that because i had this it was like some sort of armor equipment slot it's like well i can't have any other sort of forms of neurodivergent thing because like i've got like that's taken up i know what my thing is and stuff like <laughs> that but as i've gotten older and like the world grows more complex and mm-hmm. therefore my responses to have it, it had to become more complex i sort of notice little things that i wonder i can't necessarily pin down do i have elements of what is diagnosed not ocd that's not the right one a hyperfixation on certain things like mm. a uh God, i'm really blanking on the term but like when your attention can be are oh, you are thinking of adhd that's it that's it um adhd and the various things I've heard of, it's just like through the years through some very illuminating channels does there are things I recognize in my own thoughts and behaviors and approaches. And I've gone off topic, uh, which I don't know if that means it is on topic. (laughs) But um, (laughs) but in regards to Jeremy, I think that he could be someone who I could imagine if he was sort of in our world, maybe he sort of gets into his late 20s and finds out like, oh, yeah, I guess I never really thought about it. But maybe like that kind of experience. I think that, uh, yeah, that it's it's an interesting conversation, like re- regardless, because like I'll mention this later when we get to Harry, but it's great to see a broad range of like attitudes and thought processes and ways to respond to this Nutty as fuck world that we're presented with in these books.
0: Yeah. I do want to clarify that all the thoughts we had in the conversation did come up organically as a result of listening to Chapter 3. But, out of curiosity, I went back to the interview we had with Matt Wardle over a year ago. And as the voice of Jeremy, he has this to say about the character Jeremy exhibits a lot of other (laughs) facets of my personality because i'm also severely adhd okay so that's Mm -hmm. you know that that bounciness that i'll jump from topic to topic to topic you know or activity to activity also kind of you know bites me in the backside. that comes from and you know times where i'll also hyper focus where it's like i will think nothing of except what i'm doing you know it's like okay that's great i'm sorry i'm sorry she's dead but hey can you tell me more
2: about this (laughs) I know she's dead right there. It's fine. It's fine. She'll still be dead, you know.
0: <laughs> you know. But I need to talk to you right now about this. It's pretty cool, huh? You know. There are like, pictures uh... of Windows. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you know. And, and you're like, man, can you pull a modicum of tact out of here? You know, that'd be great. You know, it's like, oh god. Obviously, this is also just Matt's interpretation, but it sure makes her sure some interesting additional data. Hmm. And that said, let me return you to our original conversation. I love the fact that I unintentionally brought up the electromagnetic spectrum, since this story is literally about Jeremy chasing the rainbow. (laughs) Got
2: it! Oh, yeah,
0: exactly.
1: (laughs) I love this show. I love this show.
0: To expand a little bit more on the topic... One of the things that I was going mm-hmm. through when I was looking at this chapter is Jeremy is capable of noticing details. Like, mm-hmm. as you said a moment ago, the fact that his friend is uncomfortable and that Jeremy needs to take his emotional state into account. But he's not always able to put the pieces together in terms of conclusions
2: mm-hmm.
0: or changing the way he approaches a situation. He does reference that experience as he's trying to get the information that he wants out of Elizabeth, who is going through her own trauma in terms of she had to have, uh, I think it was an arm removed uh, as a result of her wounds, and she is very likely not long for this world. He saw that Elizabeth wasn't doing very well, and yet didn't really managed to tailor his approach in terms of how he talked to her, considering that maybe she might find his excitement off-putting because her entire team died Mm -hmm. to that other world that he is so excited to see. And Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, as she is talking around the fog of her pain and her trauma, she doesn't get why he would be that excited. Uh, and, and in the end just sort of has to accept it a little bit with a warning baked into her final words to him.
1: Mm. So as I look ahead to the like lengthy response I have to yours, I apologize for the amount I'm talking during this episode, but... Um...
0: It's all good stuff. Like
1: I, it, yeah. This is the stuff that you've
0: prepared, and it's <laughs> significant, and I, it's the stuff that we dovetail off of. The stuff that we prepare beforehand is always going to be better thought out because we've had time to craft our response. So I definitely mm. want to give you a chance to share all of that. Just please go to with yeah. your your response to my initial
1: talking point. Mm. So it comes down to a fixation on and prioritization of breaking through to that undiscovered horizon for Jeremy The story about Chasing the Rainbow is there to embody what the story suggests will be an enduring dilemma for Jeremy. Mm. Just how far can he push not just himself, but more importantly, others, in his pursuit of that elusive goal of his? It's part of his personal arc. Yes. like We have not yet had a chance to see what journey Jeremy is on, because up till now he has been very stationary. He has existed mm. in one spot and we haven't explored what took him to there or like where he might be heading from here. As, as so, he
0: specifically mentions, he doesn't usually get to go to these places. He can only right. hear about them from others. Mm. So yeah. he can understand to a certain extent every time he gets to hear a new story because this is how he gets to engage with his favorite yeah. topic.
1: I'm living vicariously through your trauma. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that is like putting it far too harshly for dear old Jeremy. I mean, uh, don't worry, Jeremy, you're a main character who has had a chapter dedicated to themselves in the early chapters of this book. I think your chances of going on this trip are quite high. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Jeremy will eventually remember himself before he goes too far as we've established, but that can make him lose sight of some details, or just not consider them. Like, when he says...
0: They wouldn't shoot a kid. Mm -hmm. Like, he
1: says that when his friend expresses concern of getting shot by one of those soldiers they came past. Like, that was a thought that hadn't occurred to Jeremy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because his his attention was elsewhere. Like, Mm -hmm. and as for Elizabeth... I think he does express at least some restraint in his approach. He is pacing his language and opting for a comparatively gentle manner of speech when you consider just how much he might jump onto a person with first-hand experience with one of these windows in any other circumstance. Like, Mm. you, you could imagine, like, tell me everything. But he is aware that he's talking with someone who is in a tender place Mm -hmm. the places where he extends a bit more than he perhaps should are clearly because he knows just how much it means for humanity to be able to find this key location Mm -hmm. and once he has the required information he acknowledges that he is so close to finding out more about his life's ambition this Other world that is just a couple of insistent questions away from having new invaluable light shone on it. Like he could push and like, it would be very easy for him to claim that this is all like vital Intel. Mm. Like he really is in a position of authority that like, you know, the people around him might frown on his methods, but like you could imagine Arlington actually being here and actually pushing this further. But even with Jeremy's personal motivation for this, he doesn't push more than is necessary just to satisfy his own personal motivations.
2: Mm.
1: He manages to prioritise this other person in time by the end. You could imagine how someone else would have played it. Like The fact that when he first sees Elizabeth, he observes that she likely will not last much longer... Someone else more driven and less empathetic could have made the unfeeling justification that nothing can be done to save her life, but if he pushes her far enough, then human progress could save other people's lives. But Jeremy still values this person's life, even if she doesn't have much more time, and he doesn't want to prolong her exertion any more than necessary even for the thing that this very chapter has shown he has spent his whole life searching for. Her time, however limited, is meaningful. This is part of the reason that I value
0: Toby as much as I do, and he values me. We don't often disagree on things, but when we do, we always come to an accord by the end. Either by bringing one of us over to the other's argument, or at the very least, helping us to look at things from a slightly different perspective. And in this case, even though we joked earlier about the fact that he and I know that he's going to be a main character, one can see in this moment that his curiosity and the problematic aspects of him that come with that are perhaps heightened because he believes he will never be able to see so many of the things he hears about firsthand. It's therefore understandable especially when Toby points out that I might have been overstating his level of obliviousness. In point of fact, you just sort of name-dropped Arlington a Mm. second ago, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking to myself, how would it have been if Thomas was there instead of Jeremy? Like, obviously, Thomas would not necessarily go that far afield Mm. uh, just for information. That's what he delegates for. So therefore, he sent the right person to go take care of that. Mm. And yet, at the same time, I think to myself, part of me was going back to the end of that particular interaction, specifically the soldier in charge, Bryce Tiller, interrupts at the end. She's like, all right, that's enough of your jibber jabber. The girl needs some peace. He. (laughs) his status inside the rsa is potentially enough that she would feel completely justified in pulling rank and saying mm. like let elizabeth rest but if thomas himself was there would she have been so bold would i potentially- think so okay fair yeah, enough yeah
1: i like i think that she cares enough about this person you can tell from this that like she would probably like have stood up and said all right you've answered enough questions like my priority is her well-being it's a good point that like it's easier for jeremy because he's not necessarily of a high rank in this infrastructure but even for thomas i think actually like just from the little we know of her character she probably would have stood up to him that's fair but mm. it also
0: makes me wonder if Thomas would have pushed harder.
1: Yeah, like, that's the thing. Mm. She would have done it. I think Thomas still would have pushed.
0: Mm. Okay. Mm. To, to cap us off on our discussion of this chapter, the way it ends, and I feel like to a certain extent this is something I missed on my initial reading, listening of this chapter. Mm. It's a detail that I myself overlooked because of the talk of monsters in the wind and the fact that our first introduction to Elizabeth was her escape from that other world. But it is very telling, particularly as far as foreshadowing for the story, that even though she survives the Windor, it's other humans that gave her her fatal wounds. She lost her arm because of bullets,
1: mm-hmm. not
0: because of anything else. And it makes a suggestion that the South itself will be as much a danger, if not more as the supernatural
1: now that is a key detail i too picked up as being significant it this isn't just the injuries and strain that we saw she had already gone through when we first meet her catching up with elizabeth this is a stark sign that this woman had the strength to survive an unknown and manifestly hostile world and yet it is the regression and poison of our own world that ultimately ends up killing her. It adds more weight to her final line concerning Jeremy having a chance to meet his monsters, but not the ones like he expects.
0: Mm. In fiction, the subtext of humans are the real monsters is so well-worn that people make fun of it whenever any creator trots it out in a zombie narrative or a similar story. It isn't wrong, But if you're going to do it, try to do it with some class. A little bit like when we trotted out that Ripley quote last season. That's part of the reason why I love the note that this chapter ends on. Because the moment is ambiguous enough that Flynn could mean that Jeremy is not prepared for what lies through the wind door. Or, alternately, what the humans are like in that part of the world. And the reality is that it could even be both. Chapter four is where it starts getting really meaty. The title of the chapter is The Subtle Engineer, and even though it is an introduction to Harry, and of course we'll talk about how it introduces us to Harry in a little bit, the thing that I wanted to start with is that even though it's titled around Harry's character, just like Chapter two was titled around Frank and Annie. Chapter four itself is full of the bringing together of all of these different characters, not just the main characters, because we get to see James and Abigail getting back together with Frank and Annie. We get to see them interact with a bunch of the smaller characters of the series so far. We start with Julius Kaufman all the way back from the handbook, and we learn about how he likes his breakfast. And then in short order, we get Chester, played, of course, by one of Alex's long-term fans, Dan Mayer, as mentioned during the recent Behind the White Scars interview. We get a little by play between Edison and Tesla, and we even get to be reminded of Virgil and Carl through flashback. Obviously, we're going to get even more of that as we go along, but in this chapter, it's starting to feel kind of like it did back in the original avengers assemble movie also known as the avengers 2012 because for some reason i decided to refer to the movie by its uk title this bringing together of big characters and small characters into scenes together into the world together it helps make everything feel alive and dynamic and fun even with the serious parts of the interaction, like when Annie and Abigail are discussing the fate of Carl.
1: Mm. The current knowledge on the breakfast preferences for Chester, Edison, Tesla, etc. are yet to be determined, but we will come (laughs) back with that as we find out more as we go further into the book. All of this stuff that you're, you're specifically focusing on with the characters just... Occupying the same space together and that being enough to engage us. Like, that's the other half of the crossover genre, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. you're inclined to think that what people want out of crossovers are the big moments, like fights or whatever else constitutes the money shot for the particular genres that are overlapping. Like, how with uh, Professor Layton and Phoenix Wright, when they had a crossover at one point, it was all about, like, (laughs) okay, but how will, like, Professor Layton be, like, in the trial? Like, whereas there's also a lot of other stuff. But, like, those are the big moments for those genres. So a lot of the time you would think, well, how would X character feature in Y setting? We
0: want to see the alien fight the predator.
1: That's Yeah, we want to see the alien fight the predator. (laughs) However, what people tend to get just as excited about, and you can see this through the thousands upon thousands upon millions of fan fiction pieces out there that will corroborate this, is just the prospect of all the little moments as well. Audiences want to see what happens when these established personalities simply hang out with one another, And while writing crossovers can have their own set of pitfalls, like trying to find a way to keep each character feeling consistent with what we know of them, or striking the right balance between indulging in fan service and telling a compelling story with all the same rules that telling any other story needs to succeed, this at least can be to a writer's advantage, as your audience will be just as keen to have the slower moments needed throughout your story as they will be for the big moments. That's basically how
0: storytelling works in general. You need to start small, build up to something big, and then let that moment subside again. This is the kind of stuff that Alex talks about all the time Mm. when he's talking about movies, how when movies do it right, there's a proper build, build, build and then a a, a softer moment, then build, 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 and then a softer moment. Mm. And then there are movies that don't, that just keep trying to build, and then build, and then build, and they Mm. don't give you any rest.
1: Yeah, it's the connective tissue between the musical numbers and a musical, you know, Mm -hmm. like, uh, I forget where I heard it, it might very well be in one of Alex's podcasts, but if the musical numbers are like the selling point that gets tickets and bums and seats for a stage musical then like action scenes are like the song numbers of like an action blockbuster or Mm. just an action story and sometimes you can sort of even if that's the case you can have too much of the ticket seller like you need Mm. to have the thing the connective tissue otherwise Bricks are all well and good, but if you don't have the mortar, then it's just a pile of bricks.
0: That's definitely true with creating any kind of media, whether we're talking Mm. about movies, musicals, books, or video games. Mm. I often hear a lot about, in terms of video games in particular, how the mortar, the stuff that is in between the big set pieces, if that's badly created or bores us, then... um, It just makes the the rest of it fall apart and everything like that. And I think you can have Mm. differing opinions on what the in-between stuff actually is as far as video games is concerned. But Mm. I'm sorry. Now I'm getting on a side tangent that has nothing to do with what we're talking about that. So let me reorganize.
1: It is a new season of Through the Window.
0: (laughs) It is. (laughs) I have many small pieces that I wanted to talk about that came up while I was rereading it, which we'll get to in a second. But before we do, one of the immediate things that I had to say is that it feels so good to come back to Abigail and James. It feels like it's been forever since we have heard from them. The Mm -hmm. last time we talked about them, you and I, was back in 2020, two years ago, when we were originally covering Secret
1: Rooms. No, that that's not right, right? No Oh, I mean it they've they oh, probably they've
0: probably come up in part mm. of like side tangents as a result of like relating them to whatever book we're currently covering. Mm. But my point is they haven't been characters in a book that we've discussed
1: as part of Since, our main seasons as part of our Jeez. main
0: seasons yeah they've come up a little bit in terms of some of the some of the news of the century stuff that we've put out or alternately stuff that we've talked about in say
1: interviews
0: yeah exactly yeah. but in terms of discussing their role inside the retrospectives we haven't focused on them because they haven't been characters in those books mm. and The beginning of chapter four is the perfect reintroduction to them, to the way they are with each other, to the way they interact with others. I can't help but smile every time I hear Abigail interrupt James and have him apologize for her. And that one moment is even, bookended. is the wrong word. The exclamation point to that moment is that very memorable riff from Mm -hmm. One Wild West. The piece that I think it started or was immediately after Annie's opening monologue for Chapter 6, which was, of course, originally the beginning for Secret Rooms, but mm. is just one of those pieces that immediately makes me think of the beginning of that story.
1: It's a flavor of story that we haven't had the like good fortune to indulge in for a while. We certainly had like, flashes of it in the Annie chapters in Arlington. Like, Mm -hmm. that definitely evoked a good portion of the chapters of Secret Rooms. But having, like, these two who are so rooted to Secret Rooms and that music play again, it really does bring it back.
0: Actually, now that I think about it, it might have had that one Wild West riff during one of Annie's... Yeah, during one of Annie's chapters, Mm -hmm. as a way of reorienting us towards her story before going back to what was going Mm -hmm. on in DC. As it turns out, we did in fact remember that correctly and even pointed it out during our original episode on the subject.
1: So I suppose that that theme is not necessarily the theme of James and Abigail specifically, but Mm -hmm. more the sort of that part of... Like new century's setting, which we Mm, have not mm. really turned our attention to yet, because even though Annie, who like that, has been associated with that particular theme and that part of the setting, so far she has been in Washington, and we've been concerning ourselves with fixed stuff that happened in the past. That's much more to do with exploring general history or just the specific history of Butler. Yeah, and. Here we suddenly have the frontier explorers coming in on their doorstep, looking like they've leveled up a couple of times and yeah. been on their adventures and all of that. So to turn back to what you were saying about like what we actually hear from them before the music plays, something you will have already heard me say a lot, and I will continue to say a lot during these early sessions with these chapters, is the word encapsulate. When dealing with a grand unifying adventure that teams up characters with a literal book's worth of previous material associated with them, the guiding principle to many of these early scenes will be succinct demonstrations of their personalities that also showcase what their dynamic is with anyone that's very important to them. As such, we need scenes that don't necessarily have to tell us everything about their lives up to now and all the nuances that they have accumulated so far across this series, but nevertheless manage to briefly give a clear and focused sense of exactly who they are and, in a word, encapsulate them. And that's very hard to pull off, but if you can, you manage to simultaneously give new readers enough for them to understand roughly what kind of person they are, while also giving old readers a laugh by handing them something that they too can say, yep, that's pretty much exactly who they are. In this case, the one, two, three of James elucidating at length their backgrounds before Abigail gives the in-world character sheet of... He sciences, I punch. And we see that this is enough to exasperate James and that this is likely a recurring scenario for this friendship. That's more than enough.
0: Mm. The beginning, as you say, definitely needs to have that encapsulation that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But we already know, you and I, and obviously we'll talk about this when it actually happens, we're going to get a lot of the details that happened in secret rooms because James and Abigail are going to end up re the events of that book and therefore also able to be able to expand on the events and how they reacted to it at the time and what mm-hmm. they think about it in retrospect. That's going to be a major part of chapters five through eight once we start talking about that. But the point that you and I were making is that we're going to get to the nitty gritty in time. This is just bringing beloved characters back into the picture where like if they were on a, a sitcom, they would be like applause and cheering from the, <laughs> from the in-studio audience and everything like that. That's, that. that's essentially what this moment is at the beginning of chapter
1: four. Yeah, it's the nuanced difference between finding out what their deal is Mm -hmm. and this being who they are. Like, we will find out what their whole deal is, but for now, like, who are they? Mm -hmm. And that's what this bit gives us. Right.
0: And that's it for this week. Doing better, hmm? Covered lots more ground? Good. Because next week, we're going to say a whole mess of stuff about Chapter 4. To close us out, I return to one of my favorite artists, a love song for one of my favorite new century couples, in honor of the story where they first began. Until next time, this is Sarah Burryles with I Choose You.
2: Let the bow break, let it down crash Let the sun fade out to a dark sky I can't say I'd even notice it was absent